Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we're going to continue our talk on disability, and we're going to give a general overview of the medical versus a social model of disability. In the last episode, we learned about various definitions of disability, and we took the time to break down the Americans with Disabilities Act assessment criteria for disability. We have a variety of topics that we're going to cover in these next couple of weeks on disability. And we really weren't sure what order we wanted to air these episodes in because we kind of just want to air them all at once, but that's not how podcasts work. It's overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) So we have decided to air this episode first on the medical versus the social model of disability before we air our episodes on identifying as disabled, internalized ableism, invisible disability, language around disability, and many other topics because we really feel that the social and medical model of disability is so prevalent in our society and plays such a huge role in conversations about disability that we really wanted to touch first on these two models before moving forward with the rest of the topics. So please know that today we're really going to skim the surface and we're going to go much, much deeper into the topics of ableism and the influence that the medical model has had on societal attitudes toward disabled people when we talk in our two-part episode on ableism that's coming up soon. So even though we are planning to do a several-part series on identity, disability, and ableism, we recognize that it's a huge topic that has infinite facets to it, and the overview that we give on it over these next few episodes will barely be scratching the surface. Barely. Not even a noticeable scratch. <laughs> Did someone polish that table after That's I scratched what it? it looks like. Honestly, I thought I just scratched Filled it. Filled it in with wax. You can't <laughs> even see it. So, since this podcast is about living with endometriosis, and most of you listening have endometriosis, we will be focusing the discussion on how it can apply to endo and chronic illness. We did want to mention that this topic is much broader than we are able to speak about. And it's much broader than our experiences. Our conversation is just a tiny drop in this ocean when it comes to the experiences of people with disabilities can have. There are various types of disabilities, both dynamic and static, both visible and invisible. And even within those types, there's dozens of different ways to be disabled. If our limited discussion of identity, disability, and ableism interests you, We do encourage you to follow disabled people online and on social media because there are so many people bringing awareness and speaking out on these topics that have a wealth of knowledge and such varied experiences. 
Amy and I have learned so much from following disabled community members of various identities and hearing their experiences and perspectives, and we still have so much to learn and unlearn and continue to learn. As Brittany said, there are many types of disability, and we did touch on this when speaking in the last episode about the ADA criteria on the different ways that a condition or an impairment can affect our major life activities or major bodily function. So we do want to say that we found some information on the CDC, the Center for Disease Control in the United States. And it basically said that they conducted a survey and they found that 26% or roughly one in four adults in the United States have some type of disability. So that actually is 61 million adults in the United States live with a disability. So as Brittany said, this topic is very, very broad, and there's at least 61 million adults in the United States with a disability. So we cannot speak for everyone, nor are we trying to speak for everyone. We're really just here speaking for ourselves. Now we want to move on to the social versus the medical model of disability. Like all things in life, there are many perspectives and ways of looking at disability and the social, political, cultural, and economic factors, and probably more factors, that define disability. Two of the main models of viewing disability are the social model and the medical model, and so we're going to discuss them in depth. But first, we just want to mention that there are actually other scholarly defined models of disability. And we found a really interesting list on a website called Disability World. And the article is titled Models of Disability, Types and Definitions. And it listed 18 models of disability when we checked it earlier today. So if you're interested, we have linked that in the show notes. But we just wanted to point out that some of these scholarly models of disability include the religious model, the tragedy model, the identity model, the economic model, the diversity model, the relational model. So it's just really interesting to take a look at all the different models. And several of the different models are actually encompassed into these larger, more mainstream models of the medical model and the social model. But it is interesting to see like various ways that disability can be viewed from different social, political, cultural, and economic lenses. Now we're going to talk about the medical model of disability, which is one of the most prevalent models of disability, really the model that society is operating under. We want to say right now that we don't agree with this model. So this way of thinking about disability is basically seeing disability as a negative change from the norm. So people with disabilities are viewed as different to the quote-unquote normal, to this cookie-cutter mold that we should all somehow be fitting in, that we don't all fit in because we're a spectrum of human beings. But okay, whatever. Yes, we should all be fitting into this one mold. And if we don't fit, then we're abnormal and deficient and broken and damaged, implying that we are not enough and that there's something inherently wrong with us. And the idea behind the medical model is that because disabled people are broken and blah, blah, blah. The idea is that they need to be, quote unquote, cured and fixed by medical professionals. That is the medical model in a nutshell. And then we just took that nut and we just threw it over a cliff 
flicked it. And then it landed in the ocean, and then the waves lapped it up on the shore, and then the tide took it out. And now it's in the middle Bye-bye. of the Pacific, and there's, a unfortunately, a very, very large plastic garbage. A garbage berg? <laughs> garbage island there, and it is now floating in the middle of the garbage island. Where it belongs. <laughs> and it is gone from our lives. Wouldn't that be great? The emphasis of the medical model is that it is medical practitioners or the medical society or even just society telling you that you must be cured in order to become normal, in order to be valuable. And that's really where the crux of the issue with the medical model lies. Well, that's damaging, isn't it? Way to make a huge population of people feel that they're inadequate and broken and not enough which is so disgusting and so not true, like 100% not true. But now I can see why I and so many of us have these feelings of not being enough, of being a burden, of being a bother, of being broken, of being an inconvenience to other people is because this medical model is so, so prevalent. And ableism, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is so, so ubiquitous within the society that we live in operating under this medical model. And no wonder why so many of us have internalized these thoughts about ourselves that are being put out there consciously or subconsciously in mainstream media and by the medical profession. And then subsequently by us who we're consuming media and then our society, people who are not disabled primarily are adopting this these ideas about disabled people. Oh, those poor disabled people. Oh, what a tragedy. Let's pity them. Oh. Save your pity. Not too much to ask. <laughs> Save your pity. <laughs> Apparently it is too much to ask, though. I mean. <laughs> and give us accommodations and accessibility so that we can play an equal role in society. We just oh, want equity. Ooh, revo- That's all we want. Just wow, equity. Oh, <laughs> wow. It's so revolutionary, isn't it? <laughs> it is to Are society. you sure you just don't want to be cured so you can be normal like me? Normal's a fallacy, honey. Let's move on. (laughs) What the heck is normal anyway? (laughs) And the other thing is the majority of conditions or impairments that cause disability cannot be cured. So if the medical model sees disability as this negative change from the quote-unquote normal that needs quote-unquote curing, but there is no cure, then where does that leave disabled people? And that's where the tragedy aspect of the medical model comes in. And we're going to talk at great length about that in our episode coming up on ableism. But what we really want to say now, just briefly, is that if we have that lens that people with disabilities need curing, but they can't be cured, then through that lens, disability is seen as negative and tragic. And under the medical model, that tragedy mindset is placed onto the disabled person, regardless of what the disabled person actually thinks of their own individual situation. One of the other really damaging aspects of the medical model is that the burden is put on the disabled person solely. Yeah, because they're broken, Brittany. Hello. Yeah, so it's your responsibility to find the cure for yourself, to fix yourself so that you may become a normal person. So the onus is completely on the disabled person. With the judgment also coming, if you do not seek a quote-unquote cure or you're not interested in the quote-unquote cure that is offered to you by the medical community, then you are then also labeled as difficult, 
they don't want it. They must not be that disabled if they can live without this. Ooh, they're or, a problematic yeah, disabled person. So many Ooh, they're negative patient. Mm-hmm. Oh, they don't know what's best for them. Oh, we better make decisions for them. Well, Take away their rights. Yeah, one of we'll the other the biggest issues is that the disabled person then can't be trusted to know what's best for them. And under the medical model, the medical person is held as the tippy top, and whatever they say must be applied to the person or therefore the disabled person couldn't possibly know what's good for them or make a decision about themselves or their own identity. It has to be whatever the medical professional says. I am so tired. It literally makes me sick that in society we hold the doctor in such authority that the doctor is like God who knows everything, whose opinion is, it's a doctor's opinion. That's why it's called get a second opinion because doctors base their knowledge on their experience, which also means their limitations. And they're right? fallible human beings. Exactly. <laughs> but yet society at large has taught us that doctors know everything and their word is everything. And the patients, ooh, especially patients who are assigned female at birth or disabled patients, all these different types of patients, we cannot be trusted. We don't know what's going on in our body. And we are like way down here at the bottom, so far away, you can't even hear me. And then the doctor is there like prominent with their voice. And it just makes me so irritated. Just having chronic illness and having gone to so many crappy, horrible doctors who don't know what the heck they're talking about, who are so egocentrical and don't have the patient's best interest at heart. And then it's like, oh, the doctors knows best. It's like sometimes the doctors knows best because the doctor has a lot of experience or expertise. And a lot of times the doctor does not know best. So let's stop telling that the doctor always knows best and let's have an equal patient-doctor relationship because we're a team. It's my body. I know what I'm living. And yes, you've seen many, many bodies with the same condition, hopefully. And You have expertise, but you are not the end-all, be-all of medical knowledge. Yeah, the way treatment should be is the person as the sun in the solar system, and the doctor is one of the planets that rotates around it. It is not shaped like a pyramid with the doctor at the very top and the patient at the very bottom and all these treatment options in between. The patient patient under under the pyramid. (laughs) But it shouldn't be that way. It should be that the doctor is in collaboration with you, not at the top dictating down to you. And that applies with the conversation of disability and also just with illness in general. That's how we should be working with our doctors, working with them, not just allowing them to direct our every move. Well, I love that because we've been taught, so many of us have been taught to just automatically defer to what the doctor says. Yes, you've said this. Yes, 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 you are the god of knowledge. And it's like, no, you're not. You're just one of the things in my solar system. We're going to collaborate. That's that's how we should see it. And sometimes you're the Jupiter of my solar system. And sometimes you're that little dinky moon that's circling Pluto. Okay. <laughs> Does Pluto even have moons? I don't know. I mean, but that's if why they, they demoted it, right? Because it didn't have moons. I don't even think Pluto's a planet anymore. <laughs> it's not. That's why I said Pluto. It's anyway, not. my point of my analogy is sometimes <laughs> they're the really big, important planet. You know, like when we go, if we're able to get excision surgery, it's like, yes, that doctor, I can't operate on myself. I can't do excision. But then when I go to my gynecologist who's all like, oh, peripene is normal. I'm pretty sure you just need to relax, honey. Everyone has pain with sex. Just drink a glass of wine. Okay, you're my Pluto right now, Get out of here. Okay? (laughs) You Pluto. Bye. (laughs) Bye. Don't need you. 
Something that we do want to point out, because we mentioned the term cure, and I think many of us in this community may think, oh, but a cure for endo would be great. Agreed. I want a cure. You can fix me. Doctor, I know I just called you a piece of crap circling Pluto, which apparently is not even a planet anymore. Actually, oh my God, are you circling my anus or is it your anus? (laughs) Thank you. You'll be here all week. Yeah, that's not what this medical model is talking about. It's not saying, oh, well, Amy and Brittany are saying they don't want a cure for endo. No, that's not what it is. The medical model, the purpose and why it's so damaging is because under the medical model, the medical society or doctors tell you that you are inherently broken and that you must feel like you are broken. And if you do not feel that you are broken, you are wrong. And if you do not accept whatever they tell you is a cure for your disease, which we know endo doesn't have a cure, but some doctors may say that it did, whatever we tell you is a cure, if you do not accept it, then you are wrong. The medical model takes away our power yes. to, to decide how we feel about being disabled. That's what the medical model does. It says you are broken, period. No questions, no arguments, no doubts here. You're broken. You are so broken. And you have wow. to do whatever like, I say to fix yourself. Kind of sounds like the self-critic in my head. I wonder where you learned that from. Did mm. you internalize something? Internalized ableism, maybe? <laughs> yeah. So we just wanted to be clear. This is not saying like, we don't want a cure. This is about The medical how... model is not going, oh my gosh, we need to tell the NIH that they need to give more funding to endometriosis so that all of those people can get a cure. That's not what the medical model is saying. The medical model is saying, you are broken and and You got to fix it. <laughs> so- you, if you want to be normal, need to get fixed. And that's very negative. Who has decided that I'm broken except for the critic in my head? <laughs> but besides my awful self-talk, who is going to tell me if I'm broken or not or how I feel or if I think that my disability is good or bad? I don't want to feel that my disability is bad. I don't want to feel that my endo is bad. And that's a personal decision for all of us. But I want to feel neutral about my body and about my disease, because I have to live with this every single day. And living under this notion that endometriosis is bad and my disability is bad, for me personally, then every time something happens where endo limits me, I hate myself. I hate my life. I hate this body. And how can I be happy when I hate myself and when I hate my body? And so for me, I'm really striving for feeling neutral about the limitations that endometriosis has brought me. And it's brought us a lot of limitations and there is a lot of grief and there is a lot of sadness and there are a lot of broken dreams and unstarted hobbies and things that we've given up. And I have, and I know many of you have given up so much. But I don't want anyone telling me how I should feel. And I want that space to explore on my own how I want to feel. And also by saying all of this just now, we do want to say that You can feel however you want about your endometriosis. And if you feel that endometriosis is negative and bad and a piece of crap, then feel that way. All get to decide how we feel. And no one can tell us how we feel. No one can tell us how we identify. No one can tell us what is right or wrong for us. And as we mentioned earlier, there are various types of differences that are classified as impairments, like visual, cognitive, auditory, chronic illness. And the social model says that we are disabled by society because of societal constructs and barriers. 
Disability is a consequence of society not having equitable access for everyone. So what this means is that not all people with what is classified as an impairment identify as disabled, and despite what the medical model says about them, they may not feel that they need any fixing or curing at all. So we're going to leave the medical model there. Behind in the dust where it belongs. So it feels like we're going to do a complete 180 because the social model is very different from the medical model. Happy to hear that. (laughs) Basically, the social model does not see a person's disability as their burden or their problem or this tragedy that needs to be fixed and cured, but rather as a socially constructed issue of societal inequality. Preach. Negative attitudes. Preach. Inequity. Uh Uh-huh. Social barriers. Yep. So the burden isn't on the individual to change in order to make themselves like the norm, quote unquote. Good. What if I don't want to change? What if I can't just become like the norm? Hmm? What if the norm is made up? Hmm? Oh, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. So we don't need to change to mold ourselves to that fake, quote unquote, norm. But society should have equal rights and equitable access to make it fair and an even playing field for everybody. We wanted to share a really great quote from the People with Disability Australia website and in their article called Social Model of Disability. Quote, the social model sees disability as the result of the interaction between people living with impairments and an environment filled with physical, attitudinal, communicational, and social barriers. It therefore carries the implication that the physical, attitudinal, communication, and social environment must change to enable people living with impairments to participate in society on an equal basis with others. Yeah, the clap track is going. (laughs) Yeah, fireworks are going off. A social model perspective does not deny the reality of impairment nor its impact on the individual. However, it does challenge the physical, attitudinal, communication, and social environment to accommodate impairment as an expected incident of human diversity, end quote. I think that's really the pinpoint of the social model that is why we agree with it so much, is that disability is just one of the additional ways in which we are diverse, one of the other ways in which we exist as a multitude of very different human beings. Instead of society making everything for one type of person, society should have access for all the hundreds of types of people. And if they did that, then they would stop seeing disabled people as a second thought, as an afterthought. Yes. I think one of the biggest discussion pieces in terms of the social model is the conversation around equity. And equity and equality are two things that are discussed when it comes to accommodations and accessibility for disabled people. And equality is saying everybody should have the same rights, but equity is saying in some cases, additional things may need to be given to people in order for them to have the same experience. So if everybody has the right to go into a museum, but the museum only has steps, then there's not equity that allows everybody to have the same access to the same experience. So creating a society in which there is always access for everybody is actually not that hard to do. It sounds really hard if you're not familiar with the concept, but instead of only creating staircases, ramps can be input. Instead of only creating narrow elevators, wider elevators can be used. It's these small things that society decides to use to fit 
the singular model of person rather than thinking about ways in which we're actually creating barriers rather than trying to eliminate them. I think this is why the societal model is so important and it's so helpful because it takes the burden away from me as a person saying, well, can you just make an exception for me? Can you make an accommodation for me? When really what the societal model says is that it's actually your responsibility to make accommodations for all types of people. And by you not designing your building or your program or your workplace or your whatever the case, to accommodate everyone is actually your fault and not my fault for needing accommodation where you did not create it or you decided not to create it in the first place. And that's kind of powerful because in other models, and as we just spoke in the medical model, the burden is placed on us as the person with the need. But the societal model says, no, it's not you that needs the adjusting. It's society. It's the way that things are that needs adjusting. I love the social model and the social model of disability has helped me so much with understanding of what I need because for so long, I've always been the weirdo, the one who needs her special phone when we go sleep away from the house and the one who brings her food in the Tupperware, her special food. And I'm just so tired of being the one who doesn't fit in and being the one, being the odd one out and being the one who constantly can't find anything to eat when we go out in restaurants because restaurants don't accommodate my needs. And of course, I don't mean that, you know, if I go to a restaurant, they should make some fancy dish for me. But just, you know, having gluten-free options, having options for people with diabetes, like having options for people with more common conditions is really, really important. And it's really hard to live with endometriosis. And it can be hard to live with a disability, depending on the different disabilities. There's so many different disabilities, and there's a huge range of challenges that may present a person with a disability. But at least I can say, in my own personal experience with endometriosis, it is so, so challenging to live with endometriosis. And those challenges may not go away if I can get accommodations. Like, I'm still going to have my chronic pain, and I'm still going to have my fatigue, and I'm still going to have my brain fog, my migraines, and my stabbing uterus pain and my blah, blah, blah could list symptoms for years and years and years. But if there was less barriers, if there were more accommodations, if there was more keeping in mind that my body, that our body with endometriosis is just not fitting in the cookie cutter mold of the person, for example, like at work and having to work from nine to five Monday through Friday and get my lunch break at 12 my body does not adhere to that, which is why so many of us have trouble in our workplace and having a job. Or if we hold a job, it's like we have to sacrifice so many different parts of our lives just to be able to hold a job. And I know that's my case. And that's also Brittany's case. It takes so much to hold a job because my body cannot be molded into this time slot and physical place that my office job just arbitrarily demands that I'm in. And it's just, it's so frustrating because if different types of bodies were kept in mind, if we had more accessibility, there could be more opportunity for us. How many more of us could be working or studying if there were online options, if we were able to do so from home, if we were able to make a flexible schedule for ourselves, if we were able to work laying down, like, and of course there are jobs where this would not be possible, but for many office jobs and other types of jobs, Workplaces could 
be more accommodating. Universities could be more accommodating, but they're not. And that is just, that is where my frustration lies, is that, yes, I have endometriosis, and yes, it's painful, and yes, I am full of fatigue, and I'm exhausted, and it's incurable. But what exhausts me even more is the fact that I'm not taken into consideration, that I'm just told, oh, you have to meet this standard of normalcy, quote-unquote normalcy, that's not working for a huge percentage of the population. And then I'm trying to mold and contort my body into fit into something that is not working for me. And if I say something, it's like I'm the nail that's sticking out that needs to be hammered down. And that's how society sees us. Yeah, it's the every institution I interact with, whether my workplace or my school place or a grocery store or a doctor's office even. It's like I have to fight every institution in order to just have equitable access. And it really shouldn't be that way. But that is because the societal model is not how our society operates. And we are still seen, like Amy said, as the nail that's sticking and that needs to be hammered in. Or made fun of. of. Yeah, instead of saying, wow, clearly we aren't doing a sufficient job at ensuring that all types of people have access. And oftentimes, unfortunately, disability and accessibility is left out of diversity, equity, and inclusion conversations and saying we want to foster a society where we celebrate diversity. But oftentimes what is left out is the how can we make things more accessible for people who are disabled? It's unfortunately left out. And so we think specifically about workplaces, which is something very much on Amy's and my minds right now, is where other identities are sought after to be celebrated and included more when asking for accommodations for disability, that seems like it's a completely separate conversation that can't be touched. It's like a thousand hoops to jump through (laughs) and a bunch of doubt and dismissal. Oh, really? Oh, you want disability accommodations? You have to prove it to me by standing on your head and spitting nickels (laughs) until you make me $10 million. Okay. (laughs) Well, you know, Brittany, you said oftentimes people with disabilities are left out. And that's the thing is we're like... In so many people's eyes, in society's eyes, in the medical model's eyes, we're an afterthought because we're not the norm and we're broken. And what do we do with broken things? We throw them in the trash. And that's harsh. And Brittany and I don't believe that. We think it is really important to talk about the way that society sees disabled people because that's the society that we're living in. And that is ableism for you in a nutshell that we're going to devote the entire episode to. So I know we're like jumping around a lot, but there's just so much to cover and it's all like interwoven like a plate of spaghetti. But ableism is a system that favors being non-disabled. It favors non-disabled people. It is a socially constructed idea of what is quote unquote normal, which does not leave room for a spectrum of bodies, a spectrum of abilities. And it leads, because of that, to discrimination, unequal opportunities and rights, and oppression of disabled people. And we also want to hold space for intersectionality in this conversation, because the identity of disability or being disabled can be one of many identities that a person holds. Some of those other identities could also be historically oppressed identities. And so people seeking accommodation or equality or equity in some spaces may be easier for people who hold other identities versus someone who holds completely separate identities but also holds a disabled identity. So we have to remember as much as it's important to be pushing for equity and inclusion and equality for disability, we have to remember what other identities we hold that may have us heard over others or may give us privileges that other people don't have. 
And so intersectionality is a really important part of this conversation because, as I said, disabilities often get left out. But when disability gets left out and you also hold other historically oppressed identities, let alone not getting a seat at the table, you're not even in the building. That's a huge, huge problem around this conversation. Although we have so much more that we want to talk about with this topic, we are going to end this episode here today. We really have only gotten started on this massive topic of ableism. And as we said earlier, we actually have a two-part series, two full episodes coming up completely devoted to this topic. In the next episode, we're actually going to continue having a more generalized discussion on identity, disability, and internalized ableism. And we'll also talk about the conflicting feelings that we may have with endometriosis and identifying as disabled. We invite you back for that episode next week and then our talk on ableism after that, where we will continue to talk about how the medical model of disability influences ableism and societal attitudes towards disabled people. We want to leave you with a question today. Had you heard of the medical and social models of disability before today? If not, or if so, what do you think of them? What do you think of each model? What do you agree with and disagree with within each of these models? What was surprising to you? Has the medical or social model influenced the way that you have received treatment, experienced the world, thought about your own disability or impairment, or somebody else's or the community at large? If you love to share with us, we are on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we are on the website in16years.com. Thank you so much for listening and sharing this time with us. 